Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. And if you'd like to follow along, it can be found on page 72 in your pew Bibles. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, Listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. An ancient Greek poet once wrote, The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. A number of different thinkers have applied this comparison to different fields, noting that foxes have different strategies for solving problems. They are nuanced thinkers, comfortable with contradictions. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, reduce every problem to one big organizing principle. For hedgehogs have only one defense available to them, to ball themselves up and deter their enemies with their prickly spines. Although Jesus certainly shows himself to be a nuanced thinker, comfortable with contradictions and loath to offer easy answers, In today's passage, we glimpse his hedgehog nature. In the ninth chapter of Luke, we read that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus will not reach Jerusalem for ten more chapters in this gospel, but he never loses sight of where he is headed. Jesus has in view the one big thing. The thing he learned at his baptism and found when he was lost in the wilderness, the thing he holds on to when the going gets tough and the way forward is unclear, he is God's son, the beloved. And he has come to earth to love and welcome all people, even though he also knows This is the one thing that will lead to his death. Jesus' commitment to God's promise is what keeps him moving forward on his journey to Jerusalem. In our passage from Genesis, Abram and Sarai are also midway through a journey. Genesis is a book about beginnings. In it, first God creates the world and everything in it. Then there is an epic flood, which is basically a big do-over. 
And then we have an accounting of lots of different generations being born. This father begets that son, and that son begets another one, until Terah begets Abram, and Abram marries Sarah, and all that begetting and procreating just stops. Genesis chapter 11, verse 30, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. With that sentence, the story of God's people comes to a screeching halt until God comes to Abram in his old age and promises that he and Sarai will not only have the child they've been waiting for their whole lives, they will be the parents of God's chosen people, a great and populous nation. Throughout the Bible, God shows up like this. God enters situations that appear to be hopeless, barren. And God promises something so unimaginable that it sounds absurd, laughable even. It's no coincidence that when Abram and Sarai finally have a son, they name him Isaac from the Hebrew word for laughter. Again and again, God announces to the most unlikely people the implausible promise that they have been chosen to embody God's love and compassion and forgiveness in God's world and for God's people. This is the promise God makes to each one of us. We gather each week to remember Not only that God has claimed us just like God claims those children in baptism, but that God sends us into the world to share the good news of God's love. But like Jesus, confronted with the corrupt and violent Herod, and like Abram and Sarai, confused by the delay in seeing God's promise fulfilled, We struggle to hold fast to this promise when all the evidence around us suggests it cannot possibly be fulfilled. In 1966, Catherine Switzer was a 19-year-old college student and an avid runner. Back then, there were no women's cross-country teams, and so she trained with the manager of the men's team at her college, a 50-year-old named Arnie who would entertain her on their long runs with stories of the many times he had run the Boston Marathon. Finally, during one painfully long training run, sick of his stories, she said, let's stop talking about it and run the darn thing. He responded that a woman couldn't possibly run a marathon, which made Catherine all the more determined to do it. Once she convinced him of her commitment by running a 31-mile training run, that's five miles longer than the marathon distance, he agreed to take her with him to Boston. She registered for the race the same way she registered for every race, with the letter K for Catherine and her last name, Switzer. At the beginning of the race, there were lots of other runners, all men, of course, who were delighted to see a woman running the Boston Marathon. 
She got off to a good start, running with Arnie and her boyfriend Tom, an all-American football player. Things were going well, until a few miles into the race when an official race truck began driving alongside them as they ran. It happened that this truck was followed by a city bus full of photographers and reporters who were covering the race. Suddenly, the truck stopped, and one of the race directors jumped off. Moments later, he physically attacked Catherine while she ran, grabbing her and trying to rip off her race bib with her number on it, all the while screaming at her to get out of his race. The next thing Catherine knew, her boyfriend came out of nowhere and tackled the guy, sending him sprawling to the side of the road. She ran as fast as she could to put some distance between herself and her attacker. All the while, the photographers captured every second. For the next few miles, it was all Catherine could do to put one foot in front of the other. But when the adrenaline finally subsided and the rhythm of her steps allowed her to catch her breath and think clearly again, she knew one thing for certain. She had to finish this race. Even if she crawled across the finish line on her hands and knees, she had to finish. What had begun as a whim ended as a cause. She started that race as a girl who loved to run. She finished as a woman determined to show the world that no one should be scared to do the things they loved to do. Our journey of faith will not be without some serious obstacles. There will be times when we doubt ourselves and our ability to go the distance, and there will be evidence that suggests we got the promise all wrong, that we do not, in fact, live in a world created and sustained by God's love and justice, but rather a world filled with despair. Indeed, from time to time on this journey, we are all tempted to despair. We despair that we humans will never stop judging one another by race and gender and ethnicity and religion, and that our judgments will continue to lead to horrific violence. We despair that too many among us are looking out only for themselves and their loved ones, even if it means lying and cheating to get ahead. We despair that all of our technological knowledge does not prevent planes from falling out of the sky or buildings from being destroyed by tornadoes or earthquakes or floods. We despair that our desire to meet our own needs and wants has irrevocably damaged our planet and jeopardized its future. We despair that the forces of division seem too great to be overcome by any solution or symposium or summit. Thankfully, we return 
each week to the stories of our tradition, stories that remind us that hopeless situations are where God does God's best work. For God speaks most powerfully into situations bereft of hope. Even there, God promises something new and unexpected can be born. When Abram laments that God's promise is just taking too long to be fulfilled, that he is beginning to doubt that he'll ever have an heir other than one of his household servants, he holds God accountable to the promise God has made. He makes his problem God's problem because the ongoing absence of a child is in direct contradiction to God's promise. God's response to Abram is to double down on that original promise. In this passage, we hear of a ritual that sounds incredibly strange to our modern ears, sacrificial animals cut in two, and a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot passing between them. But what this ritual represents in the ancient world is God saying, If this promise I have made you does not come true, then may what has been done to these animals be done to me. May I be cut in two. May I suffer. This is how committed I am to what I have promised you. When the Pharisees warn Jesus that Herod is waiting for him in Jerusalem, they are not telling Jesus anything he doesn't already know. Jesus knows that to truly reveal the breadth and depth of God's love for all people will inevitably lead to his suffering and death, to the suffering and death of God incarnate. But Jesus' death, even death, even unjust execution by a corrupt state, even death on a cross, will not have the last word. For the cross will become the most profound promise of all, the promise that God will do whatever it takes to bring life and hope to the very places in our world and in our lives that seem utterly devoid of life and of hope. Methodist preacher Will Willimon once wrote about a trip he took down a country road in South Carolina He passed a church with a signboard out front. The sign read, Repent! Now is the day of salvation. Just down the road, there was another church of a different denomination, but it also had a sign out front. This sign proclaimed, Happy Mother's Day. Virtues are learned at mother's knee. Vices at some other joint. Willimon thought to himself, what does the world that knows nothing of Christianity except for those signs think about the Christian faith? Then he passed yet another church with a sign out front. This one read, do you know what hell is? Come and hear our preacher. And down the road, there was yet another. Still more churches on this road, he thought. This sign read, we've got room for you at our table. 
hospitality practiced here, all are welcome. Finally, he thought, something that sounds like Jesus. No judgment, no criteria for entry, just hospitality and everyone welcome. But as he looked more closely at the building as he drove by, he realized that although the sign was in front of what had once been a church, it was now labeled Shady Dale Restaurant. It was a restaurant that had the sign out front that should have been in front of all those churches. Holding fast to God's promise in the face of the obstacles on our journey is an incredible challenge. It would be much easier just to let the promise go to take the world at face value, to conclude that hate and injustice have won, to turn our churches into restaurants that offer the easy transaction of food for money. But God never promised this journey would be easy. God promised to journey with us. No matter the joy or despair each day brings. And so we keep going. We keep gathering to sing God's praises. We keep baptizing those who are too young to have the slightest idea how much God loves them. We keep sharing a meal that is never transactional but always transformational. We keep proclaiming that in the face of the world's despair, God's love always gets the last word. We keep putting up signs that tell of God's goodness and love. After the terrible earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2012, street artists began transforming the devastated city by painting murals on some of the walls that were still standing, much like the murals my family and I have been noticing as we drive around Richmond. An annual street art festival decided to run a competition to find a phrase that would sum up how residents of Christchurch felt about their city and to have that phrase painted on a huge wall opposite the main bus station. And so now, in enormous red, white, and blue letters, that wall proclaims to this aching city, I always knew you would come back. Amen.